Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I don't need to tell you that the church is facing a crisis which she has rarely faced in her 2,000-year history. Rarely, if ever, faced. And I don't want to beat you over the head with statistics. You've probably heard them quite well. If you want to see really uh, a well-done presentation of the statistics and what we face in the church over the next uh, decade or two decades, you could read Sherry Waddell's book, in, uh, Forming Intentional Disciples. In the first chapter of her book, she does an excellent job outlining the crisis which we face in the church. So I don't want to go through those statistics. We know that our Catholic population is aging, that the young people are being enticed by the false promises of the world and they are being swallowed up by rampant secularism. As Cardinal Wuerl called it, a tsunami of secularism. Truly, our youth are being swallowed up by a demonic storm which is threatening the church itself. As Waddell shows quite convincingly, convincingly, and the statistics defend, if something drastic does not happen, we will cease to have a vocations crisis in the United States. We will cease to have a priest shortage in the United States because within 10 to 15 years, we simply won't have enough Catholics to serve. For me, one of the most telling signs of the problem, which will drive us in the direction of our discussion this evening, is that if you want a Catholic to remain going to church, a churchgoer, regardless of what church they go to, the best thing you can do for them is to make them a Protestant. As a Protestant, they will tend to remain going to a church. But as a Catholic, the percentages show that they will sooner or later stop going. And when asked why Catholics leave the church for Protestant communities, the most common answer is, I wanted more. I wanted more. In his letter to the bishops of the church in 2009, Pope Benedict said, in vast areas of the world, the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel. God is disappearing from the human horizon. horizon. And with the dimming of the light which comes from God, humanity is losing its bearings with increasingly evident destructive effects. What can be done? It is, or was, in the midst of this crisis which the church faces, which we can trace back decades if not further, 
that God gave to the church truly a great pope, St. John Paul II. It was St. John Paul II that first used the phrase a new evangelization. And the context in which he used it reveals much about its meaning. I hope you'll allow me for a little story. A little story which will contextualize the use of this term. And I think will help us to understand what the church is getting at. You know the context of his life. He grew up as a young man in communist Poland. He witnessed firsthand the sufferings of the people who had been stripped of true hope in God. Raised in his later teenage years in Krakow, he lived through the German occupation in World War II and narrowly escaped arrest by the Gestapo by hiding underneath a house. The point is that he witnessed the destruction of Christian society in Poland firsthand. He knew from experience what happens to society when God is removed, when God, as Pope Benedict says, disappears from the human horizon. I want you to imagine with me for a moment the picture, the scene. I'm going to borrow here from Edward Sri's uh, discussion on the matter. On the edge of the city of Krakow, the communists had erected a new city and called it literally steelworks. The city was designed to be the perfect place for work. 40,000 concrete apartments and five huge steel factories. For the communists, the new city was the icon of the new Poland, which had rejected its Catholic identity. Poland, which had forgotten its God. It was the first city in Poland built intentionally without a church. And the authorities refused to allow one to be built. As the Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, made this city without God the focal point of his ministry and his fight against the communist regime. And after 20 years of struggle to build a church in that city, he finally won. They did build a church there and consecrated it. And shortly after that, Archbishop Carol Wojtyla was called to Rome and elected Pope. Two years later, as the newly elected Pope of the Catholic Church, he returned to Poland. I'm sure you've seen pictures of his return. They're moving, truly moving. And where do you think he went? He went to that steelworks city, that city without God. And in the shadow of the new Poland, in the shadow of the concrete apartments, in the shadow of the five steel factories, in the shadow of the godless city, he proclaimed the call for a new evangelization. Quote, In these new times, these new conditions of life, the Gospel is again being proclaimed. A new evangeliz evangelization has begun as if 
it were a new proclamation. Even if, in reality, it is the same as ever, the cross stands high over the revolving world. Even if, in reality, even if in reality it is the same as ever, the cross stands high over the revolving world. And here we learn a critical point about the church's call for a new evangelization. I'll share with you a quote from Pope Benedict that will make the point. It is new not in its content, but in its inner thrust, open to the grace of the Holy Spirit, which always renews the church. It is new in ways that correspond with the power of the Holy Spirit and which are suited to the times and situations in which we live. It is new because of being necessary even in countries that have already received the proclamation of the Gospel. It is new in societies which have rejected their Christian identity. It is new to those that have rejected God. St. John Paul II says, It is not therefore a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is the plan found in the Gospels and in the living tradition. It is the same as ever. And so I ask you a question. And you have pens on your table. I'm going to ask you to pull a napkin out, pull something you can write on, on the back of your little card. And I'm going to ask you a question. Why does the church exist? And I want you to write that out. That the church exists to or for dot, dot, dot. I don't want you to share it with your neighbor. Alright? Just take a minute. Humor me, Catholics. Come on, grab a pen. We can participate. Grab a pen and write it down. The Catholic church exists to or for dot, dot, dot. Just a word or two. Maybe three words. That's it. Just whatever comes to your mind, write it down. There probably truly is no wrong answer to this. But there certainly is a right answer. It's a critical turning point, a critical point in our conversation because if we get this answer right, then we're going to get the answer to the rest of our evening right. In fact, I think we'll be on a good place to understand the entire mission of the church in this world. The Catholic Church exists too. I'll share with you a quote from Pope Paul VI. Evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church. It is her deepest identity. The church exists in order to evangelize. Now I know some of you may have wrote, written down to baptize people, to give Holy Communion, to ordain priests, to forgive sins. Those are all correct answers. But they're all correct because the church exists in order to evangelize. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. Evangelizing is our deepest identity. Why? Why? And I want to ask a further question. A further question which brings us really to the fundamental place where we need to be to launch our consideration this evening. And that is, 
What is the church? What is the Catholic Church? If we get this question right, we'll know exactly what the Catholic Church is supposed to do. Because there's an old philosophical principle which you can remember very easily. and It's called that action follows being. Or what a thing is determines what a thing does. If it is a dog, it barks. Yes? Alright. If it's a dog, it barks. If it's a cat, it meows. If it's a Catholic... Sadly, oftentimes we fall short to answer that question. We need to answer that question if we're going to understand why the Pope says that the church exists in order to evangelize. I'll share with you a quotation which might spark your interest from Cardinal Journet in his work, Theology of the Church. He says, During the time when Jesus lived among us, there were three ways of looking at Him. Some only saw in Him, quote, this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Others thought of Elias, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Still others finally were able to say to Him, my Lord and my God. Similarly, there are three ways of looking at the church. That of the man on the street and the simple newspaper reader. And we know what they read about us in the newspaper. That of the more astute observer who discerns its exceptional importance. And finally, the view of faith. And I think the example of Nicodemus is good here. Nicodemus came to Jesus, you know, in the Gospel of John, late at night while it was dark, hiding. To be in the darkness in the Gospel of John is a bad place to be, Nicodemus. And what did Nicodemus say to Jesus? He said, we know who you are. Who's the we? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees. But he was a righteous Pharisee. And he said, we know who you are. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you cannot know who I am. And why did he say that? Why did he reject Nicodemus's approach? Because the Pharisees had stood on the edge of the Jordan River and asked John the Baptist who he was and why he was doing what he was doing, but the Gospel never tells us that they actually submitted to his baptism. And so when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he said, stop Nicodemus. You cannot see who I am. You cannot know who I am unless you are born again of water and the Spirit. Similarly, we cannot see and understand the church unless we see it through the eyes of faith. And to understand the church, I believe that it is important to ask, uh, ask the question, who founded it? And when was it founded? Who founded the church? Catholics. Ah, Jesus founded it. When did Jesus... Now, okay, I got one answer. Everybody got it right. Good. <laughs> When in doubt, answer Jesus. <laughs> when did Jesus found the church? At Pentecost. Maybe somebody else was thinking another answer, yes? At the Last Supper. Any other answers? At the Incarnation. What else? On the cross when blood and water flowed out. When He said to Peter in Matthew 16-18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build My church. Wrong, 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 and wrong. <laughs> I'll share with you a second century poetic text. It comes to us from the Shepherd of Hermas. I could have picked many church fathers, but this a beautiful poetic touch that, text that I believe really touches the point. 
And the shepherd says, When I was asleep, brethren, a revelation was made to me by a very handsome young man who said to me, Who do you think the old woman is from whom you received the little book? I said, The Sybil. You are wrong, he said. She is not. Who is she then, I said. The church, he replied. I said to him, why then is she old? Because, he said, she was created the first of all things. That is why she is old. It was for her sake that the world came into existence. Pope Leo XII said that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives himself in view not of beginning to dwell among the saints, but of bathing them in His profusion. Not of inaugurating, but of perfecting His gifts. Not of making a new work, but of increasing His largesse. The problem that we face, Catholics, is that we tend to see the church as Jesus' band-aid on a fallen society. It is God's way of dealing with a problem when he was beat by the devil. The devil brought down humanity. He brought down creation. He corrupted it. And therefore, God started a new plan. Wrong. God is never beat in His plan. God waits for the moment to strike and to restore His plan on this earth. We need a new vision, not of the church as a band-aid, but as the church as the foundation of our life, the foundation of our society, the foundation of God's plan for creation. The nature of the church is rooted in creation and fundamentally in the creation of man. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And I don't even need you to read it, I need you to just look at it. Yes, Catholics, that's in the front of your Bible. <laughs> and I want to ask you a question. How is God revealed in Genesis chapter 1? How is God revealed to us? What kind of God is He? Someone said the Trinity. Not exactly. The Trinity is not made explicit in Genesis chapter 1. How is God revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1? What do we come to find out about Him? What kind of God is He? He is the Creator of the world. And what kind of Creator is He? Many types of Creators. The deists would say that God kind of wound up creation like a clockmaker and just set it in motion and stepped away. Or as the Muslims would say that God is the omnipotent will which forces Himself upon His creation. No. No. We find out something about this Creator, an aspect about Him, which is absolutely essential to understanding the revelation of God in Genesis chapter 1. And this is repeated to us over and over again so that we cannot miss the point. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Like a litany that we hear in church. In Genesis chapter 1, you cannot get away from the theme that God sees His creation as good. Well, what does it mean to see something as good? I can see that many of you saw that wine was good tonight. Alright? And when you saw that it was good, what did you do? Yeah, you went and got it. 
and you drank it. To see something as good is to see something as desirable. It is the most fundamental movement of the will. Desire. And when you see that thing as good, you want it for yourself. In the case of food and drink, we literally want to consume it. God made us that way so He would have us understand when our desires went toward the most important things. And when our will, when our desires are oriented at those most important things, when our will is oriented, our desires are oriented at persons, we call that desire love. Love is the desire to share one's life with the Beloved. To be literally united with the one you love. Huh? In, in marriage, the two become one flesh. They share a common life together as a revelation of God's love for mankind. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. When you give your life, there is nothing left to give. You've given yourself. Joseph Pieper in his work on love explains that love is the affirmation of the existence of the other. It is to say to the beloved, it is good that you are, how wonderful that you exist. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. God reveals in Genesis chapter 1 that He is a loving Creator that wants to share His life with His creation. But there is something more that we can glean from the story of creation. I want to give you another philosophical principle or ditty that you can hold on to. And that is, what is last in execution is always first in intention. The ladies will understand this. The guys maybe not so much. What is... What is last, or so what is first in intention is always last in execution. Did I get that wrong? What is last in execution, I'm sorry. What is last in execution is first in intention. Ladies, you want to make some cookies for the kids. I wish my wife was here. She could tell you the story. What does she have to do? She goes in. No, she doesn't get box cake in our home, she pulls out the flour and the sugar and she makes all of it together. She bakes the cookies or the cake as it may be. And finally, what was first in intention is last in execution. She feeds the children. That was her goal in the first place. What is last in execution is always first in intention. And what was the last thing which God created? Man. Man made in his image and likeness. A way of saying a son. One who shares in his nature. Made in his image and likeness. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, It was not for paradise. It was not paradise that gave rise to the creation of mankind. Rather, it was for Adam and Eve alone that paradise was planted. And what does God tell us about this crown jewel of His creation? That He is made in His image and likeness. In whose image and likeness, Catholics? God's, God's image and likeness. Genesis chapter 1. What kind of God? A loving Creator. 
In whose image and likeness are Adam and Eve made? In the image and likeness of a loving Creator. They are made to be like the One who just shared His life with creation. Joseph Pieper again says, it is God who in the act of creation anticipated all conceivable human love and said, I will you to be. It is good, very good that you exist. Human love, therefore, is by its nature and must inevitably be always an imitation, a kind of repetition of this perfected and in the exact sense of the word creative love of God. But if all goes happily as it should, then in human love something more takes place than a mere echo, a mere repetition and imitation. What takes place is a continuation, and in a certain sense, even a perfecting of what was begun in the course of creation. Action follows upon being. We are made in the image and likeness of a loving Creator who brings creation into existence, who wills it to be. We are made in His image and likeness. <clears throat> Action follows upon being. Adam and Eve are given three commandments at the beginning. To be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over creation, and to till and keep the garden. And when a man is fruitful and multiplies, what God had begun in the creation of Adam and Eve is perfected in the eyes of our children. He is given dominion like a king. And when a king sets his kingdom in order, when he has dominion not as a dictator, but as a king in the image and likeness of the king of all, then His creation, His kingdom flourishes. It grows. It's well-ordered. He is told to till and keep a gar His garden. What type of man tills and keeps a garden? A gardener or a farmer. Yeah. And when a gardener tills and keeps a garden, what happens to the garden? It grows. Yeah, and flowers come out and, and uh, fruit comes out, doesn't it? Adam and Eve were given the gift of being the image and likeness of a loving Creator. And therefore, they were given the command to act out that nature by taking what God had planted in seed form in the Garden of Eden and tilling and keeping it and having dominion over it and making their creation fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And this brings us to our final consideration of the creation narrative and truly to the heart of our topic of the new evangelization. What exactly was man's job? What exactly is he to, in the words of Joseph Pieper, or how is he to continue the creative act of God? Yes, all in creation was made for man. But I want you to hold on to that principle that what is last in execution is always first in intention. Because Adam and Eve, yes, were the final thing created by God, but they're not the end of the story, are they? The sixth day of creation is not the end. The seventh day of creation is the end. 
And while everything was made for Adam and Eve in paradise, Adam and Eve and all creation were oriented toward the seventh day in which they would find their perfection, in which they would live out their image and likeness in its fullness. So I ask you, what did God do on the seventh day? Excuse me. This is the image I think you guys have. God's exhausted. Oh, finally. Right? Give me a Budweiser. Not exactly. What does the creation story tell us about what God did on the seventh day when He rested? Because when God rests, He actually does something. What did He do? He blessed it. And when a thing is blessed, what happens to it? You bring things to Father Christensen all the time. I hope you do. I hope you do. And He blesses those things. And what happens to the thing you bring to be blessed? It's made holy. You know, holiness is an attribute of God alone. It is sanctified. Yes, it is made holy. It becomes a partaker in God's life. It becomes a bearer of God's life. When Father blesses bread and blesses water and blesses oil in the church, He is sanctifying it and infusing it and bringing God's life into the created order. To bless a thing is to make it participate in God's own life. And God blessed it. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. So I want to ask you a question. What were they supposed to do on the seventh day? What did God do on the seventh day? Don't tell me He rested again. (laughs) What did they do? What did He do? What did God do on the seventh day? He blessed it. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of the One who blessed His creation on the seventh day. What were Adam and Eve called to do on the seventh day? To keep it holy. That's true. But I think I heard a better answer over here. To bless creation. Adam was meant to be the priest of paradise in the image and likeness of the One who blesses all things. Adam and Eve's job was to take the life they had received from God and give it to the created order. This was the purpose of creation in the beginning. That it would be united with its Creator. That it would be a bearer of the divine life. That those that came into contact with God's creation would come into contact with God Himself. This was God's plan in the beginning to make us shares in His own blessed life. But there's a fundamental problem which develops in this context. And that is that Adam and Eve, standing in the shoes of the King of creation, were to be His hands and His feet. His elbow, if you will, which communicated the divine life to creation. And when they failed to do that, all things which had been placed under their dominion became disordered. Because the one that God had placed in their life to order it did not do so. 
the entire order fell under Adam and Eve's dominion. Instead of life, death. Instead of happiness, tears. Instead of health, sickness. This is why the fall was so universally destructive. And this is the reason why Jesus was born of the Mother of God. Jesus is the Savior. We cannot ever forget what He saves us from. We cannot ever forget why we call Him the Savior. He saves us because He resolves this problem. The problem in which Adam and Eve failed to have dominion over creation to bless it and be the vehicle, the avenue, the conduit by which God would share His life with creation. And those that share their life with, crea- with God, I'm sorry I misspoke, to share, their, share His life, yes, with creation, I spoke right. And those that share in God's life live forever because God's life is eternal. And when they cease to share in that life, then death comes to this world. Jesus is our Savior because He came to resolve that problem. He is our Savior because He came to fill up creation with His life again. He is our Savior because He came for each one of us to reclaim us as His sons that would participate in His nature that would have His life flowing through Him so that those who came into contact with with us would look into the eyes of God and receive eternal life. This is why Jesus came. John tells us in his Gospel in chapter 1, in the center of of what we call the prologue, the, the, the beginning of the Gospel, which is like a seed for the entire Gospel of John. He says that He came to give us power. He came to give us power that we might become sons of God. That is the reason why Jesus came. But just like Nicodemus, I don't think we can truly understand this gift without seeing it through the prism of holy baptism. So I ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Oh boy, where's Romans? Find the Gospels and go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, the Gospels are not in the beginning of your Bible, Catholics. You've got to go a little further along there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts and then Romans. Don't worry, I'll be patient. You've got to go about two-thirds of the way into your Bible, maybe three, no, more three-quarters, and you'll find the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts and then Romans. Acts and then Romans. And don't be embarrassed, Catholics, if you can't find something in the Bible because you've got to go home and just do something about it. That's all. It's very simple. Romans chapter 6. I lost my Bible. There it is. Okay. Romans chapter 6. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I want you to stop and, and, and understand what he is saying. He doesn't say that we are baptized like Jesus, does he? He says we are baptized into Christ Jesus. We are grafted onto him so that we would become sons in the Son, so that the blood flowing through His veins would flow through ours, that His life would be our life, and our life would be His life. When we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. Into Christ. What does this mean? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a few pages down your Bibles there. Catholics, don't go too far. It's the next book in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice the unity which is restored through baptism, which was the original plan of God, that we would all share in God's life, that we would be one in Him, that the two would become one flesh. We were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Look, if you want to understand what St. Paul's talking about, look at how God made us, because He made us to reveal to us what He wants in His church. We are baptized into Him, and this is not just some kind of strange way, St. Paul Bible talk. No, he says, look at a body, and you'll understand the way the church works. Because the body is Christ on earth. And you, baptized into Him, are members of it. But you're baptized into Him just like God made our bodies. That the hand does one job and the foot does another. Come down to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, <clears throat> the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. Listen to that. He's talking about an organic reality, an organic thing. Do we have any nurses in here? Yeah, okay. Thank you. And in an organism, if you remove something that's indispensable, what happens? It dies. Those parts of the body of Christ, those parts of the church which seem to be eh, the weak parts, they're not that important. Right? Who's important in the church? Oh, the Pope's important. Father Christensen's important. Now nah, the deacon's not all that important. <laughs> but those parts which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and if they don't do their job, if they are taken out of the organism, the organism will die. It will die. If you don't do your job, if you don't function and flourish within the body, the body will grow sick, and yes, the body will die. I want to turn to one last text in your Bibles in Ephesians. You've got to go down just a few uh, pages there. Galatians and then Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 is one of my favorite Pauline texts because it takes this whole thing to another level. Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, hands and feet, eyes and ears. Some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Doesn't that describe our society today? Huh? Every wind of doctrine that comes through, blowing through the church. By the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles, and here's the key. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. We are to grow up in every way into Christ, from whom the whole body and the nurses are going to love this, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Why in love? Because the love is the communication of life. I want you to look at this text. We are to grow up in every way, verse 15, into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together. Look, he's looking at a body and he's saying this. One is an elbow, one's a hand, one's a foot, one's an ear. What happens when the elbow isn't functioning? What happens to the hand? Yeah, it's going to die eventually. If the blood isn't flowing through the elbow, the hand's going to die and if you are the elbow, and I can guarantee you, you are, there are those who are meant to receive life from you. And if you are not alive and flourishing, if the life of God is not flowing out of you, those that are dependent for salvation upon you will also die. Why did God make it that, this way? Because He not only wants to be the Savior of the world, He wants us to be in His image and likeness. He wants us to participate in the salvation of our brothers and sisters. He wants us to feel what it is like to be God Himself. St. Augustine says, Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ Himself. You know, the apostles on the day of Pentecost, a day after Pentecost, Peter and John walked to the temple and they saw a man who was paralytic, suffering at the doors, begging for money. And they said, we have no money, but we will give you what we have. And they looked him in the eye. They said, look at us. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the man stood up and he walked. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And those who share in God's life. 
Paul VI says that evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church. It is her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize. She exists in order to communicate God's life to creation. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the building next door. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me because that's the way St. Paul talked about the church. The church exists to give God's life and we will never be happy in this earth until we are doing what God made us to do. To bring God's life to a creation which is suffering without it. And why is this the case? Because as Paul VI stated, Christ is the great evangelizer. He it is who loves mankind and shares his life with us. We then, as members of his body, have as our fundamental vocation the call to share that life with others. The new evangelization is the age-old call of the church to renew herself in her most fundamental nature, to recall the church to her proper identity. At the root of all evangelization, Pope Benedict says, is not a human plan of expansion, but rather the desire to share the inestimable gift that God has wished to give us making us sharers in his own blessed life. Thank you very much for your attention. Pope Benedict in his address to catechists, I'd like you to just pay attention to this. Without a doubt, amending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. Amen? Okay, without a doubt, amending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. But for this to come about, drum roll, just kidding. For, just kidding. <laughs> for this to come about, what is needed is to first remake the fabric of our ecclesial community itself. Serious. Restoration of society is needed. But for that to happen, Pope Benedict says, we must remake the fabric of our church itself. And this is the most important point tonight. That evangelization must begin not as an outward movement, but as an internal examination. A conversion and a renewal. Can we say, Catholics, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Can we say that with St. Paul? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Pope Benedict says that although this task of evangelization directly concerns the church's way of relating to those outside of her, it nevertheless presupposes, first of all, a constant interior renewal, a continuous passing. This is what I want you to hold on to. 
It requires a continuous passing from evangelized to evangelizing. In other words, if we seek to heal our society, let us begin by healing our church. If we seek to heal our church, we need to bring ourselves back into full immersion in Christ and in His church. And how do we do this? Pope John Paul II said that evangelizing and catechesis go hand in hand. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot give what you do not have. If we don't know the faith, and I mean know it, and when you know something, you're united with the thing you know. The two things become one. If we don't know the faith as adults, we will never be able to communicate it to others. And here, he is not speaking of children's catechesis. The faithful must be recatechized if we are going to bring that faith to others. In 2012, Pope Benedict made some comments to the priests of Rome, and I want to share them with you. He says that one great problem facing the church today is the lack of the faith, religious illiteracy. With such illiteracy, we cannot grow. Therefore, we must reappropriate the contents of the faith, not as a packet of dogmas, but as a unique reality revealed in all its profoundness and beauty. We must do everything possible for catechetical renewal in order for the faith to be known, God to be known, Christ to be known, the truth to be known, and for unity in the truth to grow. We cannot remain in a childhood of faith. Many adults have never gone beyond the first catechesis, meaning they cannot, as adults, with competence and conviction, explain and elucidate the faith and illuminate the minds of others. To do this, they need an adult faith. I'll share with you another quote from Pope John Paul II. I could have pulled other ones from the church. It might surprise you because not one church that I know of follows the teachings of the church in this matter. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I'm not afraid to say it. Adult catechesis is the principal form of catechesis because it is addressed to persons who have the greatest responsibilities and the capacity to live the Christian message in its fully developed form. Adult catechesis is the principal form of catechesis that is not the teaching of Deacon Sabatino. That is the teaching of Pope St. John Paul II. It is also the teaching which has come from Rome in document after document after document, but no one is listening. Adult catechesis must be the primary form of catechesis because it is from you and from me that our children learn. If they're not learning... We must ask ourselves who's teaching them and whether those that are teaching them actually know the faith. We build buildings, we build schools to educate the children. When is the last time we built a wing on a church to teach those that teach our children? 
This is why the Institute of Catholic Culture exists. To make Catholics creative lovers. Those who want to give the precious life they have received to others. Christians who will give and in giving reclaim society for Christ. Without a doubt, Pope Benedict says, the fabric of society, the mending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. But for this to come about, what is needed first is to remake the fabric of our ecclesial community itself. This is why we are hosting this dinner this evening and why it is such an important part of what we are doing at the Institute. We cannot simply be teaching the faith. We must once again, living in a post-Christian culture, we must learn once again what it means to live together as Christians. To meet each other face to face. To serve each other face to face. To look into the eyes of another Christian and behold the eyes of Jesus Christ in whom we were baptized. That's why people came at 2 o'clock this afternoon. That's why last night they stayed up late cutting up your food. To make it possible for you to sit at your table and to look into the eyes of a fellow Christian. And to see someone worth loving. To see someone worth serving. To see someone worth giving your life for. Because when you discover the happiness which comes from giving your life to another, you discover your true nature. The new evangelization is not a matter of merely passing on doctrine, but rather of a personal and profound meeting with the Savior, Pope John Paul II. And where do we meet and serve Christ? In the church which is His body. Here. Now. The time cannot wait. In serving each other. In serving each other who have been created in the image and likeness of God, we serve Christ. And in giving our life which is the life of God, we bring salvation to the world. God bless you and thank you for your attention this evening. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.